1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. It's been 50 years since The Who put out Who's Next, that anniversary just happened. And this was a peak moment in what we'd then look back and call classic rock, which really, of course, was a radio format and not a genre. But it was a peak in some ways. It was a landmark album. It was only separated by a couple of months from Led Zeppelin 4 which was another pillar which still is the classic rock radio format still exists classic rock still exists is another super essential pillar of that sound that format that idea 1971 was a, a a wild year altogether for music it it also saw the release of what's going on which is actually the number 1 album of all time according to rolling stones latest list and we talked about a lot about that particular album on the podcast last year and also on the 500 songs podcast has a whole episode devoted to it so you should definitely check that out but something about the confluence of those two albums who's next and Led Zeppelin and Forward, both turning 50 seem to merit kind of a look back at a bunch of things surrounding that and a bunch of things to talk about surrounding that. It raises a lot of discussion topics. So to help me out, I have Stephen Hyden. So Stephen's most recent book is This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A, in the beginning of the 21st century. He also co-hosts the IndieCast podcast, and it's great to have him back. Hey, Steve. Hey, Brian.
0: Great to be here.
1: So again, there's so much to talk about here. And, you know, we don't do much classic rock on this podcast, but once once in a while it's good to look back and there is that thing like what is and what was classic rock? You also wrote kind of a whole book about your personal experiences with that and of, of course classic rock, as I said, was, was a radio format and a ridiculously restrictive one and before we talk about the greatness of some of the music involved, there's also the frustration of, you know, like it was very, very restricted to sort of a certain idea of, of mostly white male rock. And, you know, you can imagine a much better format. Why wasn't there ever any P-Funk in, in the classic rock canon? Where was Sly and the Family Stone? Were a million things that could have fit in and expanded that. And then and where was Joni Mitchell? And on top of that, you know, there's also just great stuff like Big Star that could have easily fit in, right? So it's like there's this weird thing. There's great stuff in it. And then there's also a lot of like, They also played a lot of crap (laughs) that could have been replaced by a lot of the good stuff I was just talking about, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's always a debate when people try to define classic rock because I think that there is this impulse, it's a revisionist impulse to almost make it like a qualitative statement that, that we're talking about like the best music of the past and and that would encompass a lot of the things that you were just talking about like Joni Mitchell being grouped in there Sly and the Family Stone uh you know Marvin Gaye what's going on like that wasn't played on classic rock radio is there a more classic album from 1971 than that record but as i think classic rock is understood in the popular consciousness it really i think is tied to that radio format that began in the early 80s that's centered on this generation of bands from the 60s and 70s certainly the Who and Led Zeppelin are a part of that and I think Who's Next and Led Zeppelin 4 in particular are such cornerstones of that Mm. format I mean these are albums that I I believe like every single song (laughs) from both of those records have been played on the radio and if you were going to start just like a boilerplate classic rock station all you would really need are Who's Next, Led Zeppelin 4, Dark Side of the Moon, Rumors, maybe the first Boston album and that's about it. Maybe, like, you'd play a couple songs from Frampton Comes Alive or something. But, I mean, like, those handful of albums are, like, really, I think, dominant in that format. And, yeah, you won't hear Going Mobile as much as Won't Get Fooled Again, but you will hear everything on that record on the radio.
1: Yeah, I mean, classic rock, it feels like it's been there forever, but it was actually just started by a dude named Fred Jacobs in the early 80s who noticed that there was a sort of bifurcation between younger and older audiences in what was then AOR, album-oriented rock radio. By the way, one of the, I'm sure you can relate to this, Steve, one of the things that was a real challenge to me growing up and and learning about reading uh, rock criticism and stuff was trying to understand what the hell AOR was, this thing, AOR, that like in the Rolling Stone Record Guide and all these other places, they'd be like, the AOR, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it was a huge mystery to me. Like, what is, for like a year, what is this AOR? It sounds terrible. It it must be be something evil because the way they talk about it. But is it a cult? What is it? Um, But anyway. Well,
0: it it would be like AOR, or they might sometimes say M-O-R, which is middle of the road. (laughs) AOR is album-oriented rock. Which was more like a 70s thing, I think. That was more part of the initial wave of FM radio. That was more freeform, where they were playing sometimes entire albums like overnight. Uh, which wasn't really what classic rock is. Classic rock radio was much more of a regimented format. Playing the same songs every day. And really drilling it into people's minds. And, but, yeah,
1: classic and rock is, that's is what... the corporate ghost of AOR, basically.
0: Right. It, but it's how people like you and I came to know bands like The Who and Led Zeppelin, you know, because we're both in our 40s. I wasn't born in 1971. You know, Led Zeppelin uh, had broken up long before I'd ever heard them. You know, Keith Moon died exactly one year after I was born in 1978. I was born in 77. But it was because of classic rock radio and hearing these songs, hearing Bob O'Reilly all the time and uh hearing stairway to heaven all the time almost as much as contemporary rock songs so when i was 12 or 13 years old that's when i got these albums i I got who's next in the early 90s and it became one of my favorite records and it was also a touchstone for bands i liked at the time you know i was a big pearl jam fan at the time and they would play bob o'reilly in their encores you know and a lot of bands have played bob o'reilly in their encore so there was this sort of sense of I think, connection between the old bands and the new bands that I don't think exist to the same degree today. I think that there's still bands that are new now that love The Who, but it's not as out front as it was maybe in the 90s with young rock bands.
1: Sure, and, and also, of course, in the early 90s, the rock bands themselves were at the forefront of pop culture themselves. So therefore, all of it was kind of pulled much closer to the forefront than perhaps it is now in some ways. The thing that I, bizarrely, I only recently truly realized is this obvious point is, you're absolutely right, in the late 80s, early 90s, I think that there was a feeling among, you know, probably suburban white teens, uh, to be specific, that all this classic rock stuff was somehow sort of as current and relevant as new bands because of the prevalence of the classic rock format there were there were you know among a certain breed of kids there was there were tons of teenage fans of classic rock which by the way is a phenomenon that continued and has not stopped there's something about it they're still on tiktok there's a huge classic rock tiktok thing of kids getting into the actual bands they're into maybe shifted it tends to be beatles more than it i think it even was in the at at that point there i don't see a lot of teenage who fans right now
0: but or pink floyd yeah I, I, i was out recently at an amusement park outside of minneapolis with my family and i saw so many teenagers wearing pink floyd shirts and i think it's partly to do with the music and partly with how every generation of teenagers smoke weed yeah. So, you know. Exactly. Pink Floyd is a part of that. They own that corner, so they're they're gonna be eternal for that. You know, I was thinking about this just now that when I first, you know, bought a cassette of Who's Next and, and Led Zeppelin Four and all of these classic rock benchmark records, I mean Who's Next was only twenty years old when That's I heard it.
1: Exactly wh- where I was going, yes. Exactly. Wh- which,
0: you know, is as old as is this it? The Strokes record is now. Exactly. You know? which, which seems weird to think about, because when I was a kid, it seemed way older than that. Like, the part of the appeal of classic rock to me was that it seemed like it was part of the earth or something. It, it, you know, you know it, it was almost like as old as the blues or as old as anything else. It, and I'm sure maybe for kids now, someone who's 13 or 14 and hears The Strokes for the first time, maybe they feel the same way about that, that this is just... Music that's always been there and, and seems eternal. And, and maybe if you're not into pop music, the sort of ephemeral nature of pop, how it's here one moment and gone the next. If you want something that feels a little more eternal seeming, you're drawn to stuff like that. I mean, it, it, that was true for me as a kid. But it's just weird to think about that now because there are there is a generation of kids who look at you know, turn on the bright lights by Interpol, you know, in the same way that maybe people my age thought of who's next and let's up one four.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders
0: stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for
1: what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. It's you read my mind because that's literally what I was talking about. What I only recently kind of fully grasped is how short twenty years <laughs> really is, and how recent this music was in the late eighties and early nineties. And yes, it it did. It seemed ancient. the The bands seemed, you know, ancient in sort of a a good way. And they they seemed like gods. You know, gods still walking the earth, and. <laughs> And there's that famous graphic, of course, online, which which is very sobering for anyone over the age of 30, where they show the ages of the Traveling Wilburys while they're in the Traveling Wilburys. And as old as those guys seemed, they're all, like, 46, 52 max. Like, I mean, it's utterly horrifying. Those guys were were all younger than Tom Cruise, you know? Like, way younger than Tom Cruise is now. So it's – I think time was (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> Steven Sant would say that chronological time doesn't apply to, in rock and roll, and, and he might be on to something. But there is some weird time warp thing, and it, it's weird to think somehow. I think the strokes feel more contemporary to kids now than in some weird way than the classic rock stuff seemed in the early 80s, early 90s. I don't know if they seem like gods or just something that's still cool.
0: Uh, well, but, I think yeah, I, I I think with the classic rock bands that there there is this veneer of mythology that gets applied to a lot of those bands right. that makes them seem older, but also more mythic and uh, larger than life. And in my book, I write about people like Roger Daltrey or Robert Plant being like comic book characters more than real life people you know that there was something almost akin to like thor or batman or superman with those people because you know there was the albums there's the tell-all rock books that you read you watch the documentaries and it's just part of the era it's also the way media works that you know when i was first learning about music and reading about records sometimes it would take six seven eight months for me to actually find the record that I was reading about. Like I couldn't just look it up. So I had to imagine what it would be before I found it. And then when I actually did find it, it was again, almost like a Lord of the Rings type journey. It was like, oh, I finally found this record and now I can hear it, which isn't the same now. And and obviously, I mean, I think it's better now. It's, it's great that we have access to stuff so quickly, but it's also harder for things to have that same kind of romantic Appeal in a way uh, that maybe it did then, and it, it, and that feeds into those albums along with you know all, all the usual sort of baby boomer self-aggrandizing that goes on with classic rock, where it's like this is the greatest music ever, and you know that kind of gets shoved down your throat. I think much more so when we were growing up uh, than now. Um, well, but somehow,
1: for, for and me, I and, yeah. I, bought yeah. yeah. and I bought into that, yeah,
0: and I bought into that because I really loved the, those bands, so yeah, I didn't resist it really.
1: But for me, it always felt... I never felt like the stuff on classic radio as a kid. It never felt like sort of the big chill soundtrack where it just felt like this kind of like tinkly... Like for me, that felt like boomer nostalgia, but somehow the classic rock stuff felt like the stuff of myth and legend that that transcended mere generational boundaries. <laughs> you know? Like, so yeah. That, that was somehow... That was the... I realize for a lot of people that distinction doesn't exist. But, but I think for me, that was the case, you know.
0: Well, I, sur- you know, I remember hearing Baba O'Reilly and like, what is, what is Baba O'Reilly? Like, what does that even mean? And what is this weird synth part on here? And like, what is Roger Daltrey talking about? There was so much about it that did not make immediate sense. Uh, to me that I think added to the allure of it. And it was also, I think for me, it was the portal to an adult world, you know, that these were adults, or at least they were like older brothers, you know, who were in college or something, who were uh, living in a world of adventure and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll and all those cliches that were very appealing to me as a pimple-faced teenager who... Was living in the midwest and did not have a very exciting life i mean so i think that was part of it as well you know even like the covers of these albums yes. you look at the cover of who's next and like there's this big building it looks like a low-rent version of the monolith from 2001 and you know they're they're all taking a piss on it and like what does this mean is this like a metaphor is this a joke you know or like the cover leads up on four the the, the guy with the sticks on his back and it's on the wall with the wallpaper falling off there there were no answers to like what this stuff meant but it was wondering what it meant i think that added to the appeal of it
1: well there there was a what in retrospect was a genuine attempt at both mysticism and spirituality and in both of those albums and both of those bands pete was always writing about sort of mankind's spiritual potential is really the theme of this Lifehouse project, which again we'll get to, which is what who's next is a is a pale shadow in his mind of this insanely ambitious project he had. The whole Aleister Crowley thing and the magic with a K thing that the Zeppelin guys were into lent this air to the whole thing that was irresistible to a certain kind of teenage mind. It was there was all this lore embedded in all of this stuff, and and you're right and that the idea of mysteries to solve that were hard to solve pre internet and even you know the fact that Led Zeppelin 4 didn't have a title and Zoso and all that stuff is all the runes and everything is is just very very enticing right
0: yeah I mean I was thinking about this I recently wrote a big thing about The Who uh, for Uproxx.com and just comparing The Who and Led Zeppelin and one thing I think that's interesting that links the bands is that they both have these auteurs at the center of the band you have Jimmy Page in zeppelin and you have pete townsend in the who but they operate in very different ways you know jimmy page in a way used led zeppelin as a wall between himself and the audience and i think with led zeppelin for me it's first and foremost about the visceral power of how they sound and how that communicates what those songs are about which is darkness and sex and power and you listen to that and you feel the power especially as a young person, you want to be as powerful as Led Zeppelin sounds, and you're never going to get there, but you listen to that band in order to feel that power. Whereas with The Who, they really are apart, I think, from like all the other arena rock bands in that they're this big, loud, brash rock band, but you, they have a strong singer-songwriter point of view at the center of it. Like It is about one guy, for the most part, Except when John Entwistle is writing about spiders and, you know, being chased down by his wife. It's mostly about Pete Townsend and his identity crisis, his spiritual crisis, and, and trying to get to the bottom of that. And I think that's what connects people to the Who, that for all the great rock and roll they made and how larger than life they are. You can connect to them in the same way that you can connect to a Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell. You know, you feel the authorial voice of Pete Townsend in that band. And I think that really sets them apart from like Zeppelin or Queen or any of the big 70s rock bands. Even like a Pink Floyd. Because um, Roger Waters has that too. But he's usually writing about these big themes. And it's not quite as, I think, intimate as like the Pete Townsend songs for The Who. Does that make sense?
1: I think that's right. I I think the other thing that these bands and those albums have in common is that a couple things were being pushed forward. Um, First of all, musicianship. You didn't have, up until around that time, 69 to 71, that around then, you know, around Woodstock, that you didn't have rhythm sections that played like that in rock and roll and that kept getting better because even like the Who itself or Zeppelin itself kept getting better and so they were pushing past the bounds of what had been even possible in rock and in both cases really pushing right to the edge of prog I would say. Those albums both are it's like there's a, you know, I'm showing like sort of a, a ceiling and they were, they were starting to break through the ceiling of what would become progressive rock and in, in, in many ways, but still staying within the bounds of what was kind of commercial and sort of acceptable to a broad audience without getting into like the, uh, as much as I love proc, some of the excesses. So it's, so you're hearing those limits being, being pushed and also, you know, recording, producing engineering had hit a point. Where, you know, up until then, it's both sort of incidental to the cases of the bands themselves and also just broadly speaking. You know, like up until then, and I've, I've like argued with Neil Peart himself who loves Tommy and he thinks that he thought there was nothing wrong with the sound of Tommy. But to me, there's there's definitely something wrong with the sound of Tommy. Oh, like yeah. It's, it sounds like it's recorded inside a cereal box, you know, compared to, to who's next. And so they kind of hit a point where everything was firing on enough levels that you could get. A sound that you can't look back now—it's 1971, it's 50 years ago—and I don't think there's anything you would like change or improve about the way these both of those records were recorded, you know, or produced. Like they were, they were able to hit their potential. Whereas there is stuff, you know, there's a there's a certain turning point, it's probably like Sergeant Pepper's Revolver, uh, but before that, shit starts to sound dated sonically and limited sonically where where you kind of wish they could you know go back and make it sound as big and modern as things could sound but by 1971 pretty big and modern right they kind of hit as far as stereo recording of live bands like kind of got it
0: yeah, and I feel like we have to give a shout out to Glenn Johns, who I yes. believe worked on both of those records, and, and
1: his brother, his brother Andy. It's one family. It's yeah, Glenn Johns and Andy Johns. It was Glenn on Who's Next, and he was too busy mostly recording Who's Next and other things, so he had his brother Andy, who, who was just as good as him, worked on on, uh, on Les and Four. So, so we have to thank the Johns brothers. Yeah, um, for, for for getting us there.
0: No, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about about the progression in production that. In 1971, you do see this perfect storm of bands hitting a certain peak with their songwriting and their musicianship and and, and just the chemistry of the musicians and also embracing technology in a way that still seemed fresh. You know, like the use of synthesizers on who's next. I mean, it it was really ahead of its time for most of rock i mean obviously you had yes and like the progressive rock bands were going to be really leaning on that in the years ahead uh but it hadn't quite taken over yet it hadn't quite got to the point in the 70s like where things were starting to get too slick and too sterile uh you know which was going to be happening you know as you get later on in the decade it really was this great match of we have this emerging technology and we're going to use it in a way that makes sense and doesn't dilute the raw power of these bands, and I think it's fair to say that rock production hasn't gotten better than is than what's on those records. Like I, I, I'm sure there's many bands out there today who are like, if we could only get John Bonham's drum sound, or if we could only get you know the synths, you know, like how good they sound on Who's Next. I feel like now. Those are two of the records that most bands would look at as like we're trying to do that now. You know, rather than push beyond that, you know, at, at least rock bands of a, of a certain ilk, you know, bands that are kind of working in that classic style, like that's the kind of production that they're that they're going to aspire to, like that. You know, I'd also say like the Black Sabbath records from that time sound like pretty perfect. And I mean, I, I love the Rolling Stones records from that time too, Sticky Fingers and, and uh, Exile on Main Street. But yeah, that early 70s rock production is like pretty hard to beat.
1: Steve, you're talking about synthesizers and that it's really interesting, obviously, the use of synth on Who's Next Glenn John says in the classic albums documentary that he's pretty sure that's the first time anyone used synthesizers to kind of keep a rhythm or to provide a rhythm that the band then plays to. And of course that presages Giorgio Moroder and Kraftwerk and all sorts of things that people don't think of. If you're thinking of like, who's next is this, uh, you know, classic rock, classic rock thing. You may not think of it in that lineage, but it actually is in that lineage as well. So there's my case to people who hate rock of why who's next is important. Is that even if you only care about uh, Giorgio Moroto and craftwork, and which I can understand because you know it's pretty great. Uh, you you have to you have to reckon with who's next. So there, you have to listen well, to my you have to listen to my wife if you love Giorgio Moroto. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> well, and you know we were, we were talking earlier about the song Bob O'Reilly and part of what that title references is the experimental musician Terry Riley who was working with uh, since at that time, and he was an inspiration to Pete Townsend. And to your point, I mean, I think people look at Who's Next at this point as being this sort of like white bread, overexposed record that we've all heard a million times. But it is worth noting that I think in the moment, it actually was like a very forward-thinking record that was looking to experimental music of the time and bringing that into this arena rock context. And... I don't think you can really undersell how those elements have kept that album alive, because you know we're not talking about Grand Funk Railroad records at this time. Even though Grand Funk Railroad was at least as popular as the Who, maybe more popular than the Who in 1971, those records haven't endured in the same way as this album has. Again, because I think it wasn't just regurgitating the standard rock influences even at that time. It was pushing forward, and and in a way, it still sounds kind of weird we've all heard these songs like in csi episodes so it's like really hard to like contextualize them in like kind of a fresh way but yeah i mean i think there's like genuine weirdness and forward thinking and experimentation going on on that album
1: it's fun to talk a little bit about lifehouse uh something that's long fascinated me and all credit to to pete townsend because so coming off of of tommy he was uh you know he, he wanted to do another uh sort of even more ambitious rock opera, film project, you know, just think of the kind of thing, you know, artists not like a Beyonce who, do, who wants to do a visual album and uh, all sorts of things and then kind of even, or, or, you know, actually Kanye is a good example. It's like, you know, someone like that is always going to be reaching for things that might be like literally impossible. Uh, you know, I'm going to do, this album is gonna also going to be a video game about my mother and like, it's going to like, like just things that never happen because your artistic, reach is, is you know, you, you can't you can't quite grasp the things you're reaching for. And Pete Townsend was a hundred percent like that. And so Lifehouse was a concept that he could not And he, of course, he blamed everyone around him for not understanding what he was trying to tell them. And his idea, he explained it best in the Classic Albums documentary, which is that he literally, he really liked the idea of the deaf, dumb, and blind boy from Tommy. And he literally was like, how can I sort of do that again? Which is hilarious, of course, because that's not really an idea you need to repeat. Like, you you only get one deaf, dumb, and blind boy. But his idea was, well, what if someone was in what we would now call a virtual reality suit, and all they saw and experienced were the things created for them by the commercial world and by the, you know, whoever was making all the content (laughs) for the virtual reality suit, and they never experienced the real world, and therefore they were deaf, dumb, and blind to the real world. And now, and again, all credit to Pete Thompson. This... Now actually sounds like a fairly pedestrian idea because it's, you know, we've seen it a million times and we've seen it in the, in the Matrix, we've seen it in, in Ready Player One, uh, we've seen it in, you know, basically the internet itself, uh, which didn't, which mm. was certainly did not exist in 1971. So he, I think he really is a genius like he really came up with this stuff and so basically there was a, a film project and god knows what attached to this and it was originally going to be a double album concept album thing following the, this tale of lifehouse that ha- that does have a story you can look it up and
0: when well, there was also those young yeah. vic shows that they played in early 1971 i don't know if you're familiar with those but like the who yeah. they booked these shows at the young vic it's a theater in london and they were playing all the Who's next songs, you know, won't get fooled again, and getting in tune, and also some songs that didn't make the record, like *Pure and Easy*, and I don't even know myself, which are songs that I think Who fans know really well. Uh, and if you don't know those songs, you should definitely seek them out. But basically, the idea was that they were just going to invite people off the street to these shows, and that Pete Townsend his ambition would be that eventually the band would just be in the background and that the audience would be the stars of the show and that these characters would emerge and that somehow this would feed into the idea of there being like this mass consciousness. And I think he even had this thought that they would all live in the theater for you know several weeks and it'd be like this communal thing. And again, it was, I think, an idea that was tied with this very 60s utopianism that rock and roll can be a vehicle for improving society and that this was in some way going to be the actualization of that, and of course, what actually happened was, is that it was just like a bunch of drunks and vagrants that came off the street, and they all wanted to hear them play Magic Bus. You know, they didn't want to hear these songs that eventually became huge classics.
1: <laughs> and by, I don't know about you, but the last song I want to hear, I I always wanted to hear when I saw the Who was Magic Bus. I, I really didn't want them to play Magic Bus, but <laughs> these, these fans were different.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, and it was really like the failure of those shows that prompted Pete Townsend to reconsider this whole grand concept that he had and i think everyone around him including people like glenn johns i think they could see like how amazing these songs were that like they didn't need a concept to put across it's like just record the songs man like you guys are a great band go in the studio knock them out and you're gonna have a great record but it's amazing like how for decades after the fact, like Townsend could not let that go. It just seemed like he, like you said, looked at it as a failure on some level, because he didn't want to just make a, a, a great rock record. He wanted, I think, to change the world in some kind of way, which we laugh at now, but I think at that time, there was still this idea that music could do that. That's right. uh, and it's so far beyond our comprehension, because it just seems idealistic to the point of you know naivete you know like it doesn't make any sense yeah or madness yeah yeah and and maybe 71 is significant also because people are starting to realize that you know that along with the great strides in music and art it also is really you're starting to see what they call the corporatization of of music at that time the idealism is falling out and people are realizing that this is a business it's not Something that is actually like a life-changing force, necessarily.
1: Yeah. Well, the the irony is that the the Young Vic shows, which you know, there's a bunch of footage captured, and you, you've if you ever seen any Who documentaries, you've seen it. It's you know, it's a, just pictured Keith Moon in the headphones and trying to play along to the synth tapes, and and it, you know, there's some great performances captured. But the fact that the music honed in those utopian, bizarre. Young Vic shows where they actually got the venue for free, it was all experimental and communal and, and idealistic, that very music then sort of calcified into the sound of arena rock. We didn't talk about that aspect, but they, the arena circuit was just starting, and so the Who became a, a, a keystone of that of And you know actually in fact i, I 'm a big defender of arena rock. I love arena rock, but it, it still was you know compared to i 've talked to people who 've seen the Who at the film or East and i 'm sure that was probably a, a pretty good experience too and so they they went from that to realizing like, oh, this can be a business, we can play arenas all across the country It became a much bigger business and and that 's what you know, that's what they ended up inventing was a sound for that. So I guess there is a, a small irony there as much as I would defend uh, ar- arena rock as as a thing.
0: Well, and I love arena rock too. And, you know, it is kind of in- inconceivable to me to see a band like The Who play a song like Bob O'Reilly in like a 1,200-person club. You know what I mean? Like, there's something about that song where... It demands the arena, right. It demands the arena... It, it's almost impossible for me to imagine someone writing a song like that and not being like a huge megalomaniac you know a person who would insist on playing in front of a hundred thousand people because like how do you write a song that big and uh you know not want just to see a sea of people getting into it you know it just has that kind of sweep to it and it's why i love that song so much. I mean, and truth be told I have seen bands in clubs play that song. I guided, I've seen Guided by Voices play that right. song in front of like 250 people right. too, and it was yeah. great but part of the fun of it was almost seeing Robert Pollard play acting like he was in, in a stadium or, or, or an arena doing that song. Like you could almost imagine him having the fantasy on stage in, in real time. Because how can you not when you play that song?
1: Everything that's eccentric again about this music we just accept because we've always known it. But the fact that they they got this dude to play a a crazy long violin solo <laughs> at the end of the song because uh, it's basically a, it was a guy who who knew uh, Keith Moon named David Arbus, and he was in a band called a Prague rock band called East of Eden. There we go with the Prague, and uh, you know he he got called in to to play that solo. So you know that's very strange. I'm not sure if there's a, a you know a a long climactic violin solo in any rock song that I can think of uh, that's not by Dave Matthews. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, so it's just, but, but again, we, it's another thing that it took me years because we were just sort of brainwashed with this stuff as this is the thing in stone. It took me years to realize like, wow, that's actually really weird. Why is it? And it's cool, but why is there a violin solo? You know? And I think part of it of course is, is Pete Townsend's vision of himself as a composer which goes back to the megalomania, but he was correct. He was a composer. And Roger said something interesting, which is that Pete always knew that this stuff was for the ages. Like he he was making classic rock before anyone else was kind of seeing it that way by that time. He was he thought this stuff would be around for decades, which you don't necessarily hear a lot.
0: Well, and and I think it is because the songs, as much as we hear them, aren't as obvious as they seem. And there's aspects to the songs that i think hit people the hundredth time they hear it you know you think of a song like won't get fooled again which again i think that's the theme song of csi miami or or is it the original csi it's one of those shows so you might just think of that as like oh that's the song where roger daltrey screams and it's this you know arena rock song we've all heard a million times but you get into the lyrics of it, and it's an incredibly cynical, and I think in many ways insightful song about politics. It's as cynical as any punk rock song that came about, you know, six, seven years after Who's Next came out. And yet it's in the body of this enormous, crowd-pleasing arena rock song. But, you know, like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I mean, there's not many Dylan lyrics, I think, that are as insightful as that about the nature of Politics and 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 leadership, and as it existed in 1971, and as it exists now. I mean, you, know, you hear that song; and it's not any less relevant now than it was then.
1: Yeah, and it's a, a very sort of proto Gen X cynicism, and and one that would still piss off young activists, you know, because it's it's not <laughs> it's not an activist song. It's a it's a song sneering at at extremism. Uh, in any direction, and it, it's, it's not necessarily in tune with the times. It, it, it's a little bit looking past. It's almost like a, a post-Watergate-type song written in the, in the heat of, you know, 1971 and, and uh, Vietnam War protests and, and everything else. It's, it's inter- And you can argue with the song, too, you know.
0: But- yeah, I mean, I would almost say, like, it's not necessarily anti-activism as it, as it is anti-power. The idea that like if you feel like you're gonna step into a power structure and affect change that way, that power corrupts and mm-hmm. that anyone who gets into that will ultimately repeat the mistakes that other people did. So maybe the solution is to take the power structure apart. Maybe I'm giving Pete Townsend too much credit, but I think that's a that's interpretation of that song that could work. And look, we've seen that to be true time and again you know, in the 50 years since that song has been written. And I think we'll see it after that, that uh, you, you put certain people in the halls of power and it just seems like the structure that's in place just corrupts people. Um, and it's worth being cynical about that and maybe reconsidering an alternate path to change. Pete, if you're listening, I hope that is <laughs> an accurate uh, interpretation. I'd be, I'd be uh, curious to hear what he has to say about that.
1: I, I did find, you know, I found some post-Trump solace, immediate post-Trump election solace in that song. You know, I, I thought of uh, pick up my guitar and play just like yesterday. And I was like, look, you know, I, I find meaning in this stuff the same way I still find meaning in Star Wars. I don't care how many other millions of people have tried <laughs> this stuff to death. I still, you know, so it's, it's uh, you know, Anyway. Really something and I agree with you to ponder what you said that you know rock production rock sounds didn't get much better than on leds up on four and who's next and that was 50 years ago I'm not going to uh, get into, like, Rock is Dead debates with you for many reasons, but it does point to some of the challenges of the genre. When you have 50 years ago, uh, you have a drum sound that really hasn't been bettered, uh, specifically, I would say, on, you know, the John Bonham drum sound on uh, Led Zeppelin IV, although Keith sounds pretty good on Who's Next to, and that was half a century ago.
0: Well, don't you think that's true of all genres, though? I, yeah. I mean, I I feel like... It's not really about innovation artistically because, you know, sounds are just one thing. It's what what you do with those sounds is, I think, where the, uh, the progression and the innovation comes in. But, I mean, I think I would say the same thing about R&B music, too. I would say the same thing about dance music, like the sounds that they got in the 70s. I just think technology can only improve things so much. Before it starts to take things away, and maybe I must start sounding like Jack White here or something. I mean, I'm not saying you have to like yeah. record in a, you know, through a tin can or something for artistic purity, but I think that's just the that's a bigger observation than, than just rock. I just well, think I, I that don't know. I
1: mean, I, I guess the difference is because if you play '80s hip hop to a kid who likes hip hop now, they think it sounds like something from like The Flintstones, you know. So so it's sort of like there's whereas if you're if you're someone who likes rock and you play them this thing from 50 years ago and even a kid they're not going to be like that sounds ancient necessarily on a sonic level or on a you know or on any level really you know so that that's the right. weird thing that's I mean, the weird thing
0: yeah although i mean there's a lot of music now that is emulating the sonic qualities of the past though like even like the hippest biggest hit makers and even in hip hop i mean it's like drawing either either through samples or just through like having sonic signifiers that are reminiscent of previous eras but less so the 70s now it's like more about the 80s and even 90s you know and that's just part of the cyclical nature of how these things work but i mean you know getting back to leds up one four i do think it's true that like i think for a certain kind of like straightforward rock band like not every rock band i mean not i mean i don't think like Coldplay or the Killers, or you know, a lot of well, bands be, like aren't emulating Let's Up One 4. But I mean, well, I, well there's I,
1: a basically it would be overkill to have the John Bonham drum sound on certain kinds of music, it would be ridiculous, yes,
0: right. <laughs> I just think that for like a straightforward rock band where it's about four people playing together and creating like again the visceral sound that Let's Up One has. Like heavy riffing rock with a tremendous ry- rhythm section and a singer that like cuts over the top of it. It's hard to think of a better example of that than Led Zeppelin 4. And also the fact that that album has a lot of beautiful folky cuts as well. I mean, it gives you a little bit of everything. You go from Black Dog to The Battle of Evermore to When the Levee Breaks. It's a little bit of everything from a band that I think doesn't always get credit for how versatile they are. I mean, I think they're thought of as like one of the greatest hard rock bands of all time, but they actually played like a lot of different styles of music really, really well. And the fact that they could go from being this hell-raising blues rock band on their first couple of records to being a band that was like very indebted to like Fairport Convention on the third record and then marrying those two sides on Led Zeppelin One Four, I mean, it's a pretty incredible progression for that band over the course of like two or three years.
1: I feel like a song. I have a easier time hearing the freshness in some of the Who stuff than "Stairway to Heaven." It's very hard. I can I can do it with some effort. But it's very hard to kind of put yourself in the place and being like, and be like, "I'm hearing this for the first time. What do I make of it?" You right. Know? Because that that it, it's it's just so embedded in the culture. That it gets very hard, but it, it's—I mean—there is a bootleg recently escaped, a very low-quality bootleg of the first time they played it live before anyone heard it, and that—that's really interesting because you can actually hear it. there's some people who are talking during it. Right, of oh, really course. Funny. And the, and that is that cracked me up, and that helped me hear it fresh for the first time. That, that it, it you know that maybe it was a little hard to get over at first because its it is a—it takes a while to you know it's like Beavis and Butthead seeing they're picking their noses until the rock part starts. So, You know that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they wanted to hear a whole lot. A of love or you know communication breakdown you know they were just bored by this song that takes forever to get to the rocking part i do find that with led zeppelin 4 that a lot of zeppelin fans i think underrate this record because it is so familiar and it is an album again that every single song is played on the radio like even like four sticks and misty mountain hop some of the like less like some of the deep cuts on that record like i've heard those on the radio and i find that when you talk to Zeppelin fans, they're, they're quicker to say that Led Zeppelin 3 is their favorite, or Houses of the Holy is their favorite, or Physical Graffiti is their favorite. And those are all great records. But I think if you take away the familiarity of Led Zeppelin 4, it's pretty hard for me to put any other Zeppelin record above it, just because it does give you a little bit of everything in a more concise package than Physical Graffiti, for instance, which I love Physical Graffiti. And I have said that Physical Graffiti is my favorite Zeppelin record on occasion. But it's as hard to hear Zeppelin 4 with fresh ears, like you said, you know, to appreciate a song like Stay Away to Heaven that I think is compositionally, like, pretty ingenious, like how that builds, uh, the different parts of it. Or When the Levee Breaks. which i'm fascinated by the production of that record just like how that sounds it's a very weird sounding song like what they do with the tracks i'd love to see a classic albums documentary on up on four like i you know jimmy page is like a pretty you know close to the vest type of person i he's someone i'd love to hear break down those records how they made them because there's certain sounds on those records that I—it's like I don't understand like how they got it or like what they're doing here, and it's similar to the Who's Next conversation we were having that these albums that seem so obvious and so elemental in a way, there's a lot of eccentricity going on that we overlook just because they are so familiar. You know, I wish I could hear them with fresh ears or just to know what it would be like to hear these albums for the first time again because I think you'd, in a way you'd pick up more stuff than we do now, having heard them like a million times.
1: You know, I've actually found that, and we should wrap in a minute, I've, I've found that a great spatial audio mix, Dolby Atmos, done really well, I would say Abbey Road is the one example, does allow you to hear these things fresh. So I would like someone to do like a great Atmos mix of these records without ruining it. Um, so, <laughs> right. so, which is a, which is a, a big talk because I've also heard some Atmos mixes that actually there's one of uh, a couple, like of uh, a couple songs on appetite for destruction that absolutely ruined the songs. Um, so, <laughs> but before, I mean, I, I will say, man, that, that like the beginning, <laughs> I almost hesitate to say it because, but we're talking about many years ago when I was in like eighth grade and I was just getting, really getting into music, but I can viscerally remember putting on a, a Sony Walkman with cassettes and playing Led Zeppelin 4 and, and maybe I remember hearing for the first time that there's a, a sound at the beginning of Black Dog at the beginning of Led Zeppelin 4 which is basically like the the tape whirring up. And it is, so there, there's that sound and then the most incredible vocal you've, you know, that one of the most incredible vocals ever recorded just that insane Robert Plant vocal acapella with like all the echo in the world flathering complete. Come on, nonsense! Like the lyrics are, <laughs> they don't hold up, do they? As <laughs> poetry, you know. But but, as you said, there's some extraordinary power, and I think that's a that's an experience you can chase the whole rest of your listening life is just hearing is being hit with something like that. And there's not even any, you know, even before the instruments come in, there's there's just so much power in that. So and to go against what we were saying before, yeah, 50 years ago, people are still chasing that sound, but it is extraordinary that it's half a century ago. And it still sounds powerful. Uh, Yeah. You know, and it's also just that we're getting into the history. Before that, there wasn't a century of... The 20th century is the first century of recorded music. Right. We don't have a precedent to relating... We don't have a precedent for relating to 50-year-old recordings that much. Uh, you know, the the first was like recordings from the 30s and the 80s which was, you know, we were everyone had the Robert Johnson box set. So there but that that's the earliest sort of precedent for 50-year-old recordings is around the 70s or 80s is when you could really first even have 50-year-old recordings to listen to. So it's yeah. a pretty pretty new phenomenon. So we don't we don't have a precedent. And especially for the precedent that as we said that 50 years ago was around when they were making recordings that would still sound contemporary. So we don't have a precedent for relating to music that still sounds where the technology is is totally acceptable to us. You don't have to apologize to a kid for playing it like, oh, this is going to sound old and and kind of, you know, sorry for the tape hiss and the, you know, the the shitty sounding drums. So it's it's, it's really, really interesting and I think unexplored.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, that was a big theme of my book, Twilight of the Gods, just talking about what you're saying about how this generation they really are setting like a new bar like with each decade that they're around you know like in the 80s there was no such thing as like 40 year old rock stars until this generation like people thought if you were in your 40s you had to retire and you'll go into a rest home somewhere and then it was in your 50s then in your 60s then in your 70s and then in your 80s and you know like you were saying In 1971, the idea that kids would have been listening to music from 1921 was totally inconceivable. Kids listening to music from like 1951, like 20 years earlier, would have, you know, no one would have done that. And yet there are kids who will go back to these records and find something in them and and enjoy them and it does leave open the question of like well how long can this last will there be people that care about the 60th anniversary of these records or the 70th anniversary and i don't know the answer to that i mean i guess i'll care you and i will care because we will i think we'll always love these records but um it is fascinating to see how they age and continue to speak to new generations and I think it's a positive thing i you know, to me the great thing about music is there's always new music to get excited about and then there's always music from the past that's new to you that you're discovering and then there's music that you've loved for a long time that becomes a part of your history that connects you to older versions of yourself and really i know for me i have cds that i owned when i was 15. I don't have anything else that I owned when I was 15. Those records are like the only connection I have to an old version of myself. And I appreciate that. It grounds me in a sense of self that I would lose and I'd feel sad if I lost that. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how these age, but they're aging well so far.
1: Yeah, and it is weird because, you know, of course, we're not sitting around putting on these records uh, anything close to every day or even every few years personally because they're playing in my head permanently but it's it's fun every few years maybe even ever to actually put it on and see if what's in my head matches what was actually recorded so yeah
0: yeah i just listened to a bunch of who because i just wrote this thing for uprocks and uh and i hadn't listened to the who in a while and holds up it holds up really really well so if you haven't heard either one of these records in a while put them on (laughs) i think you'll still enjoy them
1: So this has been today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. Thanks so much to Stephen Hyden for joining me. His most recent book is This Isn't Happening, a a book about the making of Kid A and much more. He also co-hosts the IndieCast podcast. And Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Download Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's always specifically appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.